The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Larry Allen. Larry is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And uh, today we're talking about acquisition potpourri, what's going on out there in the marketplace, some key issues and opportunities and initiatives across the government, um, and some patterns and business trends. Uh, Larry, welcome to the show. Roger, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Uh, well, it's always an interesting discussion. And, um yeah, because you are a uh, an astute follower of uh, <laughs> all things GSA in particular, but also government wide. And there's uh, a big um, issue, or the big initiatives that is on everyone's mind is the uh, Section eight forty six implementation. Uh, GSA announced a that is holding a public meeting on June twenty first, beginning phase two of the implementation process. Um, which is basically a lot of market research. Um, the registration for that industry day is open, and we're awaiting some RFIs with regard to the topics and subject matter and that sort of thing. So, you know, Larry, your thoughts on the on the? Let's just get started on that. And your thoughts on the uh, industry day and where we are with regard to eight forty six. Well, Roger, I think you set it up very nicely. GSA is definitely in the market research phase of the. Section 846 Commercial E-Commerce Portal Project. Uh, this industry day is going to be one where they have already said they're going to do mostly listening again, similar to the first public meeting they did in January. Thankfully, for those of us in industry who are looking for some direction, uh, GSA has also indicated that they may actually have something to say at the beginning in terms of where they think they're headed, some of their philosophy, questions uh, or answers that they've received so far, which of course in turn lead to more questions. So uh, I think that everybody who attends this industry day is kind of hopeful that they're going to get some information as well as have an opportunity to provide information uh, to GSA. As you indicated, around this, probably before this industry day comes around in June, GSA will have out on the street a request for information where they're planning to ask, I believe, a series of questions that'll kind of run the gamut on the Section 846 process, everything from questions that would be in the ballpark to an actual provider uh, of an e-commerce portal solution uh, to companies that uh, would potentially have those products sold through a portal or companies that would even compete uh, against uh, an e-commerce portal solution. So, uh, there's a lot left to be done here, Roger. You know, one of the things that uh, GSA is looking for, they're looking for a flexible platform. In the discussions I've had with them, it's fairly clear they're not looking for uh, a take-it-or-leave-it type of uh, solution. Uh, even though they're working on proposals, probably the most market of which is a legislative proposal to increase the micro-purchase threshold to $25,000, uh, there, which would not require a lot of tweaking on the part of a commercial company to accept uh, orders up to that level. There's some 
different approaches. That's a good way to look at it among some of the potential e-commerce portal providers in terms of how willing they would be to tweak their systems to meet the government's needs. And it's something that's going to have to play itself out as we go through this process. Yeah. So the the implement to your point, like the different approaches, you know, and GSA identified sort of three types of portals, the e-commerce portal, uh, the e-marketplace portal, and uh, e-procurement, I believe it was. Right. Uh, so, and, you know, the e-marketplace is sort of your traditional kind of what people think of in the marketplace, like an Amazon or a Walmart perhaps type platform. E, the e-commerce is the idea of uh, companies that sell via their own websites. Yes. You know, and then the last e-procurement kind of approach is, you know, the ability of software to create business, you know, the Travago kind of, kind of example or uh, Kayak or whatever that, that uh, GSA keeps referring to, I guess. Do you see GSA trying to, uh, you know, go to all three? I mean, they say they are, but I mean, it's some are lend themselves more to, I think, what people think, what a marketplace is or isn't. Any thoughts on that? Well, that's a really excellent question, Roger. You know, I think the legislation that set this all in motion contemplates a traditional e-commerce portal solution that would be closer to a you know, company that sells both its own goods and the goods of others through its platform. Uh, so you have third-party vendors selling as well as the, the actual company that provides the service. But GSA, in the conversations I've had with them recently, it's clear that they're very intrigued with the idea of having a company that sells most or all of the transactions via third-party uh, suppliers so that it's not, in effect, competing against third-party suppliers. Uh, so it's more of a, a neutral platform approach, sure. if you will. Mm -hmm. And that's one that uh, was early on, Roger, was supported not just at GSA. Originally, I heard it from the people at OMB who were working on this project. Well, also, Larry, just... You know, that's also, frankly, in my view, consistent with the statute, 846, which there's a clear prohibition on a marketplace provider using transactional data relating to a third-party supplier selling through their platform, using it for their own competitive purposes whatsoever. It's consistent with what Congress said as well. Well, right. It's in, in the original enabling legislation. It's clearly on the minds of the team at GSA and OMB. It's so much in Congress's mind, Roger, that we've even seen some amendments offered to the FY19 defense bill that would reiterate or perhaps strengthen the original enacting legislation on that regard, uh, which if that's the position that the government wants to go into, A, they're entitled to go into it because they're it's the government, it's their solution that they want to have, and B, they're looking... Uh, it, it does lend itself more to one type of solution than another, where you do have this kind of neutral platform, such uh, a situation where people can do their own line comparison from different vendors and whatnot, uh, with some assurance that the portal provider isn't rigging the system or isn't mm -hmm. uh, you know potentially going to turn and eat its young. The young in this case being the companies that sell through that platform. Well, yeah, and also it's it's also consistent with whole body of case law at GAO with regard to 
conflict, organizational conflicts of interest. It's consistent with the FARs 9.5. It talks about organizational conflicts of interest. And the sense here that the, the theory is it's a unequal access to information creating competitive advantage. So you are servicing by providing the platform the same companies you are actually competing against and you are using that data from your service to more effectively compete against them or whatever. You know, that in a traditional government context, which I think quite rightly actually is a pretty sound policy, is identified as an organizational conflict of interest. I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the larger picture here too, Roger, is that this is just one example of how government acquisition rules and established precedents and case law don't always match up with what goes on in the commercial marketplace. Uh, and there are, we could point to a whole variety of things, socioeconomic designations being just one that leaps right off the page. So GSA and Illinois- but I will say this, and I get your thoughts on this, but also out there right now, right, there's a growing concern about the use of data commercially too, whether it's, you know, just the platforms we use on a daily basis in any manner, that data, the collection of that data and how it's used um, by corporations is something that seems to seems to become, a, uh, you know, something that lots of people are at least talking about. Well, certainly it's a big issue. It's a big issue, particularly in Europe, Roger, where you've seen the European Union enact just recently rights that allow people to be forgotten, people not to be tracked, to have their data uh, erased or put in a, uh, a box somewhere, a virtual box in the corner of the internet that nobody looks into, uh, that type of thing. And we've seen discussions of this happen in the United States as well. Be interesting to see whether or not we follow the European model. There, It's going to be a healthy debate. And it's yeah, one that right. definitely transcends the specific issue of GSA's e-commerce right. portal, but this one really is a, a microcosm of the larger yeah. discussion. Yeah, it's sort of like, I mean, some would, you know, let's microcosm, we could use a cliche canary in the coal mine, who knows? Like, it's it's at least a, it's an interesting dynamic um, in how the federal is dealing with the data issue or its own transactions versus the commercial uh, template. Um, interesting stuff. And Larry, we're already up on the break, but we're going to continue our discussion of 846 because we really didn't talk about the the other big issue is the uh, that people are talking about there is the uh, the increase in the micro purchase threshold proposed uh, that came out of the GSA's implementation plan increase to twenty five thousand from five thousand for DoD currently and ten thousand for civilian agencies. My guest today is Larry Allen. He is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio fifteen hundred AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And Larry, we talked a lot about 846 in the last segment. Let's continue that discussion. And I know we're going to talk about the micro-purchase threshold, but I think, think you got a last thought, or I'm going to give you an opportunity for a last <laughs> thought on the, on the use of data in this context. Roger, we've talked a little bit about the government wanting to have better access to spend data for some legitimate reasons. They want to be able to understand what different agencies are buying so that they can make smarter buying decisions and they can use analytics to get better pricing, things of that nature, all of which are good outcomes. But there's a flip side to data collection as well, and it really is one that comes back home with this whole Section 846 project, and that is 
they're going to be commercial third parties collecting a whole host of government buying uh, information. And the real question is, who has access to that information? Uh, how's it going to be used? And exactly how safe and secure is that information going to be? Because even government acquisition professionals, both current and former, have made the point that sometimes the United States government doesn't always want people to know what it's buying <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, for good reasons. And while we can talk here about, well, you know, these are mostly commercial items and commercial services and things of that nature that are going to be bought through the 846 portal, you and I both know that there are an awful lot of commercial item acquisitions that get used for non-commercial purposes, ultimately, yes. Roger. And it's a question that GSA is going to have to ask the portal providers. And as they start contemplating putting contracts in place, this whole issue of who's going to have the data, who gets to look at it, who doesn't, how is it going to be protected? This is going to have to be really addressed and addressed uh, in a crisp, thorough manner. Right. And, and clear manner, right? You've raised the exact key policy issues that are also reflected in the law as well. There's you know, there's acknowledgement of you know protecting the information, who has access to the information, the statement in the statute that it's the government's information. All those things are all lined up, as you just described, that GSA and OMB are going to have to address. And it would be interesting to watch that process work through. Now, your thoughts on the micro-purchase threshold increase, proposed increase. Proposed increase was, you mentioned in the last segment, Roger, the proposal would be to increase the micro-purchase threshold across the board in government to $25,000. Currently, it's $5,000 for the Department of Defense and $10,000 for civilian agencies. The important thing to understand is that even that civilian agency threshold, I think, is just a little less than a year old. So we don't really have, talking about data again, we don't really have a lot of good data on what micro-purchase threshold buys look like at anything over $5,000. And here is this proposal to more than double the limit yes. uh, all of a sudden. And uh, it's gotten some people, uh, I think, very concerned. On the one hand, you can understand if you're going to put a commercial e-commerce portal in place, you want to be able to have it be useful and be used for a variety of buys and have some good functionality to it. And those are, are reasonable points. On the other hand, the government can buy an awful lot of, uh, make a lot of awful lot of $25,000 purchases, Roger. And you've got to ask the question, well, you know, what type of competition? Uh, are we better off making seven $25,000 buys or are we better off making one $175,000 buy, is that going to get us better pricing? Is that going to get us better terms and conditions? That's a legitimate issue. Also, how are we going to make sure that socioeconomic requirements that are still part and parcel of micro-purchase buys uh, enforced? How are they going to be enforced at this higher level? Uh, and particularly the case when uh, the purchases are going through a third-party provider uh, that commercially does not have to deal with these things. Right. So it's a significant question. Uh, at the coalition spring conference that you held a couple of weeks ago, I was kind of surprised to hear from so many people, a lot of them government contracts attorneys, just the what types of concerns they had surrounding this increase in the proposal. 
But like most good people in government acquisition, when I went back and I started thinking about it back in the Allen Federal Procurement Laboratory, it kind of made sense. I've been to that lab. <laughs> <laughs> few, few go, many go in, not oh, all okay. escape. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so there are a whole host of you know questions about that increase in the threshold and what does it mean with regard to, you mentioned some of the key requirements that government does focus on. And it is that age-old question between what government unique requirements are sort of fundamental to, are basically a government requirement by their very nature. And the government, for policy reasons, has imposed that, whether it's Trade Agreements Act, and that's treaty-based, Buy America Act, whatever, versus streamlining and being more, quote, commercial-like. It's the age-old thing. It really focuses that that conversation quite a bit. And also, just your thoughts, they... You know, how does this fit with category management? And when you when you increase the micro purchase threshold, when the whole goal of category management is to buy smarter, what? Well, buy smart and category management also says uh, we're going to find best in class vehicles. And there's a whole separate debate, as you know, Roger, about what uh, identifies something as best in class. But the whole idea behind category management and best in class contracts is to Make sure that the government is doing what? Make sure the government is buying in a smart manner, that it's getting good values, that it's actually getting uh, the products that it thinks it's getting. And look, we're talking about, in category management, choosing between contracts that have already put into place with companies that have already been vetted by a contracting officer and some government agency to be responsible and responsive in Section 846, we really don't have that. I mean, yes, somebody's going to vet the portal providers. That's understood. But the host of suppliers that sell through those portal providers, you know, there's no privity of contract. There's no contractual relationship that those companies have with the government, at least not for this part of their, their business. So how does this really square? I think that's a good question. How are you making sure that... This is actually giving you a good value, uh, that it actually is a best-in-class alternative to an existing contract with pre-vetted companies uh, who themselves have not only been vetted as reasonable, but their pricing has been vetted as fair and reasonable, uh, and that they're actually authorized to sell the things that they're supposed to sell. Uh, All of these are questions that Section 846 is going to have to answer uh, as it goes along. Yeah. And, you know, Section 846 can have, just to switch gears or sort of segue to another topic, is, you know, one of the things that needs to be looked at that the statute talks about is impact on other government programs. So how does, you know, where do you see the schedules fitting in with this, and or what's the impact, or what's the imperative for the schedules in this context? Well, Roger, that's literally maybe the 12 or $15 billion question. Uh, indicating the amount of products that go through the schedules program. And I think that uh, if you're looking at schedules that sell predominantly products, particularly those that are commodity-type products, uh, this could be a very big challenge to them and the companies that are on them. And, you know, the government does have the ability to decide who it wants to buy from, and everybody understands that, uh, or they'd better. On the other hand... Companies have made substantial investments of time and talent and money to obtain and maintain their schedule contracts. 
to put the types of compliance requirements in place that having a schedule contract requires of them. In some cases, it's not far-fetched at all to say that, you know, it's a million-dollar-a-year proposition, perhaps more if you're a large company. And uh, Section 846 has the potential to come in and take out, take away a lot of your business, at least your schedule business, uh, from you. And making that investment perhaps not something that is a justifiable business right. expense moving forward. Right. And Larry, we have to take a break, but to pick up on that thought, we'll talk more about the schedules in the next segment, but the potential implications of a parallel uni- commercial item universes, right? One that's portal up to 25,000 where you, what requirements do or don't apply versus any other multiple board contract that has for commercial items that has things like trade agreements that those parallel universes go to that investment you just talked about. My guest today is Larry Allen. He is president, Allen Federal Business Partners, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And we're talking, we've talked a lot about 846, and we started our discussion of schedules. We do see those, the idea of potential parallel universes, Larry, Larry, um, with regard to the portal and what may or may not require there versus what re- what's required under a schedule or other pre-existing contract. Um, let's talk about that schedule. Let's continue the discussion that schedules universe a little bit. And, um, you know, what are some of the things you're seeing going on right now in the schedules that um, are of interest to our listeners? Well, Roger, as you know, some of the things that GSA has done lately uh, are intended to make the schedules program more competitive. They have implemented an order level material rule, sometimes known as other direct cost. Uh, That's been in the making for many years. And uh, the idea is to make the schedules more competitive uh, with other multiple award contracts. Uh, So I think there's a a lot of support for that. Uh, One of the other uh, issues that uh, GSA is, I think, struggling a little bit with, Roger, is to sin or not to sin, and okay. if you're familiar with the schedules program, to, we're like not to talking, be or not to be, huh? You know, we're I, not I talking it. about a moral <laughs> dilemma on a Saturday night. No, no. Uh, we're talking about special item numbers, and we've seen GSA most recently put together a new special item number on Schedule 70 to address, in a more overt way, continuous diagnostic monitoring needs uh, for its large agreement with the Department of Homeland Security. Many of the services that go through that SIN were already on uh, a company's uh, IT schedule, but this new SIN basically packages it up, Roger, and makes it easier to find. This CDM SIN kind of continues in a trend that GSA got into about two years ago, uh, where it takes and creates new packages in the forms of new special item numbers uh, to make a whole host of particularly IT-related solutions easier to find on the schedule, making it clear to a buyer in the federal market that the schedule is much more about buying desktops and laptops. On the other hand, because all of these, or most of these products and services already existed on somebody's schedule, we're talking about duplicative work here, uh, more work for contractors, more work for contracting officers, Industry is no great fan of the proliferation of special item numbers uh, and because it takes time and effort to 
uh, do what they've already done. So it's a lot of administrative, additional administrative costs and tracking and that sort of thing. Right. So I think we're kind of almost uh, at the end of the era here of uh, Roger of new sin creation, uh, which I think is a good thing. Uh, we've had some personnel changes at GSA. We've had, I think, GSA hearing industry pushback. Uh, you and I know that GSA previously has taken an approach uh, to fi- marketing their schedules by putting together handouts. Now you could make them virtual handouts, virtual catalogs that highlight the fact that you can find the prepackaged solutions that you want. And there was the marketing function that prepackaged everything and made it clear rather than the contracting function. Uh, by uh, establishing a succession of new special item numbers. Uh, Cost to GSA for putting together the marketing material, but from a contract management standpoint, that path forward was much more supported by industry than the the proliferation of SINs. Right. To your point, they kind of used the SIN structure as the template for how they advertise what's available on the schedules rather than allowing companies to offer the service, particularly IT services in an integrated manner, the way it's typically bought, you know, but by dividing it out, they're able to say to customers, yes, we have cyber over here. We have IT, healthcare IT over here. When before it was, you know, they were just there as part of the IT services. And in the past they have, to your point, relied more on putting together instructional materials for agencies of how to acquire those things using those contract vehicles. Uh, you know, I, I think GSA, that being that bridge, they've, they've got to find the right balance there. Is that fair? I think that's right. You do have to find the right balance. Everybody uh, who is a supporter of the schedules program, whether you're an industry or GSA, wants the program to succeed. And I think they're still, despite years of actual buying to the contrary, a perception that The schedules program is for commodity-type items. So from that aspect, it's basically a good thing to be able to dispel the rumors and break down the misperceptions uh, to showcase all the things that you can actually get through the schedules program. The question always becomes, all right, well, how do we best make that point? Yeah, how do you present that? So do you see 846, you know, sort of putting pressure on the GSA to – further enhance, streamline the schedules program? Do you think it's a healthy sort of pressure? That's part of the purpose, I think, of 846 is to get, to, you know, when a, you know the unsaid things is get people thinking again about how to streamline processes. Streamline processes, Roger, and get federal agencies the solutions they need in the time frame in which they need them, whether it's through 846 or through the schedules program or, or even one of the GSA GWACs. So I think this will require GSA to do some analysis of the types of schedules they have in the marketplace, the types of different special item numbers they have in the marketplace. Uh, Things for personnel services, for example, come to mind, which is one of the two schedule contracts that has a very high access fee and frankly doesn't drive a lot of business. Uh, What's the business case for maintaining that contract when you have pressing management needs, and other parts of your services portfolio. Uh, The other uh, one to look at is going to be the new iteration of Schedule 75 on the other end of the spectrum, going from services all the way over to some of the more basic types of commodities. 
Uh, again, uh, for the OS 4 iteration, higher access fees, and frankly, if you're a contractor, not a lot of margin in there. And if you have the ability to shift gears as a provider and sell through one of these portals, uh, you're probably going to be able to do that at a better margin with fewer costs uh, as associated to the, the GSA solution, the schedules-based solution. Uh, GSA is going to have to think about that. They're going to think about how do they want to reach that customer and did they miss the curve? Right. Did they miss the S curve in terms of reinventing the the seventy five schedule? Well, that's a good question, and it just I I just you know what GSA is going to have to make a really to me compelling case to a customer agency as to why that agency should pay two percent. Isn't it two percent? It is the enhanced sin that's supposed to have these additional features when they could probably get the same service under the basic schedule or their own contract. I mean, I, I have you seen, I have not seen the message on that and how, how, how it's, you know, going to be the 2% is going to be worth it. Well, I, I think just the opposite, Roger, you know, yeah. one of the things that we're talking about here when we're talking about office supplies is GSA's market basket approach. You know, they get a competitive price, the best price for items that are in a specifically identified market basket. Well, the most recent discussion I had with GSA people working on the Section 846 project is, how do we do market basket pricing to get to that exact same right. outcome? Right. And, of course, with technology, lots of things are possible. Uh, if you've got kind of portal providers that are willing to uh, put pricing together in a market basket format, presuming that it, one or more might be aligned to do that, then you've got market basket pricing here on 846 without the fee. You've got market basket pricing over here with the fee. Uh, it's going to be a very difficult uh, sell for, for that part of the schedules program. Larry, we'd have to take our next break. On, on the last segment, I think we're going to talk about you know where GWAC max spending is is going, or maybe a little bit up for Tara and what and a couple tips from you with regard to the end of the fiscal year. We got four months left now. Uh, what contractors need to be doing about tuning up their contract vehicles? My guest today is Larry Allen. He is president of Allen Federal Business Partners, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Larry Allen. He is president of Allen Federal Business Partners, and we've been talking, gee, we spent most of your show talking about 846 and schedules, uh, Larry. We didn't get to our potpourri of issues, so I guess we'll try to tackle at least three things this segment. Uh, first, uh, you know, where are we on uh, the MAC multiple award contract, GWAC, spending so far? Well, Roger, Max spending overall is up, at least if you believe a recent report issued by Bloomberg government, and I certainly would believe that. It's reliable. Uh, what Bloomberg government found, Roger, was that multiple award contract spending now accounts for almost 25% of all federal contract dollars spent on acquisition. And if you look at specifically the IT portion of that market, it's about 50%. Uh, that go through a pre-established indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity, multiple award contract of some type. Those are significant numbers. 
But if we want more significant data, Roger, it's there too. Yeah, I want more data. Go ahead, Larry. I want more. I want more data, Larry. So total spending in FY17 through these MAC contracts, according to Bloomberg government, hit $125 billion. That's a 10% jump over FY16. And you and I both know that the government appropriated dollar amount did not expand by 10%. So it's very significant that the MAC share of the market would grow uh, by a larger percentage than the federal budget would grow because that tells me that MAC contracts are taking away business from other contract vehicles. And if you're in the federal marketplace selling commercial goods and services, you've got to take a long, hard look at your MAC and GWAC presence. And right. uh, if you're not on uh, one or more of these contracts yourselves, uh, how do you align yourself with companies who are so that you can participate in this. That's particularly true if you're a small business, where Bloomberg government estimated that small business participation on these multiple award contracts is at a five-year high. Whether or not that's related to the government's meeting its uh, small business use goal, Roger, I'm not sure we can make that direct correlation, but uh, it's obvious that MAC contract general, MAC contracts generally are good contracts for small businesses. So there's a lot of, of good news stories here for MAC contracts and companies that are on them. How this plays out with category management, we'll have to see. Right. Is Do you have any, I mean, I'm trying to, what, what, is, what is pushing the trend? Is it part of it, the idea that to reduce contract duplication that we've been talking about for years? Is it um, people are more comfortable using them even than they have been in the past? I, well, I think, what do you think it is? I think what it, most of what it comes down to, Roger, I think, is being able to do a lot of things in a very compressed time frame. Right. And there are two factors that are pushing on this. One is we don't really have the acquisition workforce that we used to have in the government. So there are fewer people left to do even more work than used to be the case. If you've got fewer people and more work to do, you're going to have to find easy and fast and efficient ways of conducting those acquisitions. And MAC contracts certainly do that. The second, and I think major factor driving this, is that Congress has been five and six months late each of the last two fiscal years passing an appropriations bill, effectively giving agencies half of a year to conduct to all of their yeah. buys. And if you have a lot to do in a very compressed time frame, you're going to have to go to a ready-made contract. You simply don't have the luxury of time to put your own contract into place, put it out on Fed biz ops, and wait 30 days for a response because you've got 10 other things you've got to do before September 30th hits. Right. It's interesting. That's And I think you're absolutely correct on especially that last point, um, in particular, just the pressure that's put on uh, agencies due to the Time frames that you know the money's been made available to them to actually execute on their missions because it's not just getting the money; it's got to be a you know a portion. It's got to work right. its way down through the system, and that takes time too, as well. So even if Congress gets it done in X month, you still got, it still takes a it's while. It's at least after. thirty days yeah. after that. Yeah. It could be forty days after that. So, so you know, last year that meant that everybody got their number right around the first of June. This year it meant that most agencies got their number right around the 1st of May. Yeah. But either way, it doesn't give you a lot of time 
particularly this year if you're in DOD when you actually got more money to spend. Right. So you're going to have to find an efficient way to get get it all done. Right. Okay, let's turn to Fatara. I know you uh, have some news there that has been out there with regard to you know the Fatara grades. Right. So the Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act, or Fatara, uh, has caused a report card that goes with it every year, uh, Roger. And recently what was announced was that a number of agencies, most federal agencies, actually saw their grades go down, some for the sixth year in a row. And while that may not be shocking news, to me it got me one of those aha moments or made something that makes you think for a minute because in the Allen household, probably the same as the Waldron household, if your grades go down, you don't get the little benefits that mom and dad <laughs> give you around the house for having uh, bought home a good report card. So that $20 per A or whatever it is, you don't get that. Yet in the federal government, a worse Fatara report card gives you access to the IT Management Act right. <laughs> funding. So you get opportunity to apply for more funding. And depending on what agency you're in, Congress may have given you more IT appropriations. So what's the downside? And that got me thinking, well, if there is no downside, is Fatara report card still relevant? And I think that's the big question. And we're actually starting to see the debate shift somewhat away from the original Fatara evaluation factors, Roger, more into things that came after Fatara, where we're talking about how do we measure cybersecurity uh, inside agencies. I think we're starting to see that focus change. Uh, and as I said in a recent newsletter, a lot of uh, school kids, maybe in the Allen household, might want to go live with DOD because it might be easier to get that money from the report card from DOD than it will be for mom or dad. Okay, well, and, and maybe some of these measures are trying to provide some infrastructure or, or tutoring support perhaps to get those grades back up? I don't know. That's, well, no. I, to keep I, the theme going. And okay. I think that's the idea behind the president's management agenda, Roger, yeah. is to drive these, uh, drive better decisions, drive better outcomes. Uh, and hopefully there really is a need for modernization. So I don't want to make too light of it. I do think, though, that at some point you have to tie. If, if Atari report cards matter and you issue them, before because they matter, right. then you have to tie performance. There has to be a downside to right. consistently not getting up to snuff. Right. And Larry, we've got just a couple minutes left. Um, so I wanted to just some thoughts for contractors. We've got, what is it, June, July, August, September, four months left in the quote shopping year, and people have just gotten their money. Um, you know, what, what do contractors need to be thinking about? Roger, I'm telling contractors right now they need to focus on three things with four months left in the fiscal year. First, cast a wide net. Now's the time to fill up the pipeline with verifiable and actionable opportunities. Later on, as we get closer to the end of the fiscal year, you're going to have to make some hard choices and be really exceptionally focused on the projects you might actually bring across the finish line. But right now is the time to fill up the pipeline with your possibilities. Yeah, right now doing your market research, right. so to speak. And, and making sure you're out there having the meetings with the prospective government customers. Now is the time, though, Roger, to tune up your contracts. So if you've got a GSA schedule or if you've got another GWAC contract and you want to get the latest and greatest solution added to it, now is the time to do that, not 
August 15th. Uh, now you're a little late then, aren't you? A little late, and you know, you're going to upset your customer. You're going to upset your contracting officer at GSA. So you need to anticipate those customer needs and have those contracts tuned up now. Right, and that's much easier to go and say, yes, I do have that on my right. contract versus, oh, I'll get it on my contract, right? right? Uh, it's exactly right, yeah. uh, particularly if you're going to be last in line on August 15th because 30 other contractors had that great thought before you did. The third thing I'm telling companies is make sure you're syncing marketing with sales. Now, that may seem like an obvious thing to do, but obviously, if I'm writing about it, not every company always does that. And what we're talking about here, Roger, is generic marketing campaigns that are popular and easy to put together, but in reality do little to help move the sales needle. So what I'm recommending to companies is making sure that your message is clear and consistent across both your marketing and sales functions. Make sure that you're selling the same story and that's a story that's going to resonate with that federal buyer. Right. It's got, you've got to be relevant. Right. Absolutely. And relevant to the customer. And and Larry, this show is always relevant when you're on. So I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Roger, I really appreciate the opportunity and look forward to seeing you again next time. My guest today has been Larry Allen. He is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Off the Shelf, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.